So if you turn in your Trinity hymnal to page 871, and we will res I will pose the question, and you guys answer. We're looking at question, catechism question 27. Twenty-seven. Is everyone, everyone there? Still see people flipping. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? So, I'll <laughs> sorry. Here. I was, I was, that was that was a, I was I was that was a pre that was a or that was, that time it was rhetorical. Now we can do it together. <laughs> Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And if you turn your Bibles to Matthew 8, I'm going to start with a single verse, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. Hmm. <clears throat> Matthew eight twenty, and Jesus said to him, "Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head." Let me pray. Heavenly Fathers, we consider the your plan of salvation as we consider how Jesus Christ came as a man and suffered the humiliation in that estate. Lord, I pray that we would uh, give us open ears and eyes. May your spirit speak through your word. May we uh, come to right and proper understandings of your word and grow more in love with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A, uh, a Christian musician penned the following lyrics He said um, about Jesus. said, Oh, you did not have a home. There were places you visited frequently. You took off your shoes and you scratched your feet because you knew that the whole world belonged to the meek, but you did not have a home. No, you did not have a home. And as we approach the topic of Christ's humiliation, I know it's easy for me to jump straight to the last week of his life on earth. And, and that is a major part. His passion is a major part of his humiliation. And so we'll consider that. But I also want to remind you that his humiliation began deca decades earlier, and it extended beyond his death. And as we will use in the catechism to guide our, our, dis my, our discussion, and I want to give, it's been a while since we've been in the catechism, a few months, so I want to give a quick context of where we were at. Um, question 23 so we just looked at 27. 23 is one of those outline questions that sets the stage for the section we are in. And this is actually in the broader section of Christ as our Redeemer. And so question 23 said, what offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? And it answers, Christ as our Redeemer executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So the Westminster divines would have us know that Christ fulfills three offices, prophet, priest, and king, uh, prophecies which were associated with anointing, 
This is hence his title of anointed one or Christ or Messiah. Um, and he fulfills those offices in two different estates. Um, not just after his ascension, but also in his time on earth in his state of humiliation. Dustin previously took us through Christ's offices back last spring. Tonight we're looking at his humiliation. And next Sunday, Lord willing, Dustin will, will cover his exaltation. And so the first point that where this starts out is that Christ's humiliation began at his birth. At Christmas, we often emphasize the humble and poor condition of Christ's birth. We have Christmas carols like, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. You know, it's almost sort of, it's become so common that we hear it year after year, you forget that a manger was a feeding trough. It wasn't something normally that a baby would be in. Although I do have to confess, I don't really like that particular carol because, um, no offense, Carol, but um, <laughs> due to the second, the line in the second verse about no crying he makes, I mean, I think it, I'm concerned it doesn't do justice to Christ's humanity. Uh, he was a baby. And babies cry. That's how they communicate. So if your child cries, don't think, when your child cries, don't think, oh, man, I wish I had Jesus for my baby. <laughs> yeah, right? So, but back to the humble conditions of his birth, we are right to emphasize that Christ, this is great King David's greater son, was not born in a palace, as might be expected. And, and the catechism highlights that with this almost sort of parenthetical and that in a low condition. So he's born. Because let's remember that even if Jesus had been born in a palace with a golden crib and luxurious Egyptian cotton sheets, fluffy down pillows, right? What a humiliation that still would have been. This is the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He enjoyed glory with the father before the world began, John seventeen five. The mere act of taking on human flesh and being born as a baby, nursing from a mother of his own creation, is a humiliation greater than we can imagine. How great the descent of Christ when we consider his pre-incarnate state. The Puritan John Flavel said, Was this not astonishing self-denial, that he who from eternity had his father's smiles and honors, that he from creation was adored and worshipped by angels as their God, must now become a footstool for every miscreant to tread on. For his humiliation continued beyond just his being born, even shortly after his birth, right? His, his family has to flee to Egypt to escape the wrath of a king that the Son of God created and sustained the very existence of. And I mean, and even and I think there's even an irony in that because throughout the Old Testament we see is like, don't turn to Egypt. And what well, is the place Christ has to go? He has to go to Egypt. To um, to uh, he is obedient and do his parents are obedient in doing that. Um, he then grows up on the wrong side of the tracks, as it were, um, as Nathaniel initially dismisses him in John one eighteen. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is where Christ is born up. It's the the, the, the boondocks of his own country. His own brothers do not believe in his mission. And as we read earlier in Matthew 8.20, as an adult, he did not have a place to call his own. He didn't have his own couch or his own bed to come home to after a long day. Something even the beasts of the field and the birds of the air have in their own way. And yet, during this period, he is executing his offices as a redeemer. Most clearly, 
in his earthly ministry, we see him as prophet and as king. He teaches the people, revealing the Father to them, and exercises rule and authority over creation, including over the evil one and his demons. I wanted to um, take a quick side here. So the Westminster Divines wrote the larger and shorter catechisms as tools to summarize and teach the doctrines expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And as to the confession, I'd like to turn briefly to highlight an aspect of Christ's humiliation that didn't make it into the catechism. Yeah. Um, so chapter 8 of the confession is titled, Of Christ the Mediator. It's page 853 in the Trinity Hymnal. If you want to look, this will be pretty brief. And paragraph 4 opens with the statement, This office of mediator, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake. And Think about that. that Jesus was not a reluctant savior of his people. Um, He did not submit to this humiliation under compulsion or coercion. I realize that you little young people, do you know what compulsion or coercion is? No, no, that's it. So, so it kind of means when your ear, when your arm is twisted, you do something against your will. Yeah, I um so. As you guys, most of you, I think, everyone knows, my wife has a large family. And they have a, um, a Marco Polo. Do people know what Marco Polo is? It's an app where you can post little video messages. And so often there will be things on here where it's sort of like, oh, who's your favorite uncle and stuff. And, and the truth is, right, the uncles and aunts always win because they can, they can give candy and sugar and all the things that the parents can't. And one time, though, one of my sister-in-laws got on there, and she was going to get her daughter to say that she was her favorite. Her mom was her favorite, and it was, you know, it was those t- I can't repeat all. It just, it was sort of, okay, who's your favorite? Come on, come on, who's your favorite? No, 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 not daddy. Who's your favorite, right? <laughs> I, you know, those times you just need a really, really good laugh, and I, that was, that was one of those for me. It was, it was great, but it was just funny. So, and it's like, and then she got on afterwards. She had the audacity to say she wasn't coerced. <laughs> Right, and it's like no, she, yeah, you may have not like bribed her, but your parents says those sort of things. You know what you're supposed to do. She she was coerced, right? But getting back to Jesus, so Jesus is not coerced. We see this in, in Hebrews ten verses five through seven, quoting from Psalm forty verses six through eight. It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, "Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me." In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. Friends, know that Christ's love for his people is such that he willingly submitted to the humiliation and came to do what the triune God had purposed from eternity past. And in his human nature submitted his will perfectly to the divine will, as we see in Gethsemane, as he is anticipating the agony of his passion and says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. This is a willing Savior. And so with, as we looked at Christ's humiliation being born, secondly, we'll look in what in many ways is the climax of his humiliation, uh, the suffering, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross. We're obviously we're not going to cover – when we do these catechism questions, we can't cover every single point. There's enough there, so – kind of skipping over being born under the law and whatnot. But um, we'll cover this a little briefly, mainly because we don't have a ton of time tonight, and also 
not to minimize the importance, but because we're in the middle of Christ's passion on Sunday mornings as we're going through the Gospel of Luke. And so, and in many ways, Christ's humiliation is most pronounced here as he experiences the betrayal of one of his disciples, the desertion of his closest friends, the injustice not just of pagan Gentile Romans, but even from his own Jewish people who had the law and the prophets and should have been welcoming him and worshiping him. Then he is numbered among the transgressors and dies the death of a common criminal. Moreover, the cursed death of being hung on a tree reminding us of the even greater humiliation he suffered uh, under the wrath of God, suffering the punishment for the sin that his people deserved. And so here we see most clearly in many ways his priestly office, as he is both the priest and the sacrifice, offering up the only perfect sacrifice for sin, his own body, which alone could accomplish what the blood of bulls and goats never could, the complete forgiveness of sin. It's interesting also that in his crucifixion and events leading up to it, um, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Mark Jones, uh, author, notes that upon the cross, his threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, was actually blasphemed. Uh, Dustin noted one of these last week, um, how he was blindfolded and struck and told to prophesy, and so that, that it directly his prophetic office is being blasphemed, and then um, later on the cross, it's actually the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Um, they mock his priestly office, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. And then following that, they mock his kingly office, saying, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cro- now from the cross, and we will believe in him. So in his humiliation is even such that he is, the very offices he is fulfilling, he is being blasphemed and 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 are being denied by his people and so finally after he dies he is buried and in the words of the catechism continues under the power of death for a time i want to consider this for a moment because as i was studying this question really this is probably the part that stuck out at me most i think i've i've kind of defaulted to thinking that uh, at his death jesus is uh, reunited with his heavenly father and that his humiliation was over um, I mean, as he tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And so that is true. And yet also, but in Jesus in Matthew twelve forty says, just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And there are other passages throughout the New Testament. It's, 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 it's emphasized like in the creedal statement on in first Corinthians 15 Christ being buried and dead under the power of death for three days. And what struck me is that I realized is I think in some ways a deficient view of Christ's incarnation, um, this joining of the human and divine nature without conversion, composition, or confusion was kind of creeping into my thinking. For for Jesus, or the Son of God, having joined himself to a human nature with a real human body and soul, his humiliation could not be truly completed until his soul was reunited with his body. And so, um, which would only happen once his body was resurrected on the third day. Uh, The Belgic Confession describes it like this in Article 19. So then, what he committed to his father when he died was a real human spirit which left his body. 
But meanwhile, his divine nature remained united to his human nature, even when he was lying in the grave. And his deity never ceased to be in him, just as it was in him when he was a little child, though for a little while it did not show itself as such. And so really in that, and I think, and that reminds, it reminded me as I think about that this is our hope, right? Our hope is the final resurrection. The, the hope of each of us who is numbered among Christ's people, having been baptized, professed our faith in him, is that we will share in a resurrection like his when he returns. Christ's humiliation gives us hope in what he accomplished. And um, and there's also instruction in it for us. Mark Jones again notes, uh, this is from Knowing Christ, reflecting on the call for Christians to have the mind of Christ in humiliation and that there is no humiliation too great for us, says this, while it goes against everything our Western society would teach us, our glory as Christians is our humiliation. For our humiliation in the name of Christ is our badge that we belong to him and will one day be exalted to reign with him in glory. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And that last part's quoting from 1 Peter 5, 6. And so that is, so Christ, as, 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 as Mary alluded to, the, the next question is Christ's exaltation. So we have this coming down. Next week we'll look at his coming back up. And so, but it is important what Christ, for Christ to accomplish his, his work, that he was humiliated, that he as true human suffered these things, that he, to, he was under the law and perfectly obeyed it in our place so that we, we don't just have a blank slate, but we have Christ's perfect record. And so when God looks at us, he sees that perfect record of Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for choosing us uh, before the foundation of the world. Jesus, we thank you that you left heaven and took yourself and took to yourself a human nature with um, subject to all of the infirmities that we are subject to except sin. And so you know what it is like to walk on this earth. You know what it is like to hunger and to be tired and to be thirsty. You know what it is like to be tempted by the devil. And yet in all of these things, we praise you for your obedience. We pr- and we thank you for the love that you show us, that you willingly took this on so that you could and even go and went to the cross in our place, dying that we might live. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to to call us, to sanctify us. We pray that we would continue to grow after the image of Christ and that his humiliation and and willingness to be humble would um, would be a pattern for our lives as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.